0: Hemophilia. The category of hemophilia. Weeks ago I called them amongst hemophiliacs. I in particular is a hemophiliac or well, yeah, a vampire dealing with hemophilia, complications <laughs> from hemophilia, living with hemophilia. Living with hemophilia. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blood Problems Podcast. Reflections on Living with Hemophilia hosted by me, Michael Bishop. I'm back, man. A podcast that began with a whimper and then took an incredibly long, undeserved hiatus for seemingly no reason. But there was a reason, I promise. The break came as a result of me not knowing where else to take things with this podcast. I made two incredibly personal episodes that were hyper focused and very cathartic to make, but left me in a place from which I didn't really know where to go. They were like, they were super exhaustive and. I felt like I after those two episodes, I needed to always come with something that was so personal and so um you know, those were those were two incredibly gnarly discussions that I had with myself and, and with you guys. And I felt like if I if I didn't have a, a story that was similarly impactful or or vulnerable and emotive, then I, I shouldn't record any more episodes. But I, I didn't want that to be the case. You know, I wanted to keep doing this podcast. And, and so I, I took a step back and I asked myself, how can I restructure this to make it something more sustainable so I don't have to come every episode and give you something so intense and only present these super sad stories with either melancholic conclusions or no conclusions at all? while also not losing sight of its purpose, because I, I do want this to be something that's, you know, substantial and valuable and vulnerable, while also not going too far the other way and take away from the podcast I do with my friend Brandon, Lost in Tangents, which is mostly lighthearted and fun and, you know, a comedy podcast. I want this podcast to be somewhere in between those two things. Sometimes gnarly and heavy, sometimes lighthearted, but hopefully always well thought out and something worth listening to. I decided that this podcast is going to be more of a a personal reflection on life generally. A place to show writings and musings about life, a place to experiment intellectually, as pretentious as as that sounds, Um, and one that's not just about hemophilia, but rather the life of this particular hemophiliac. And so... um, yeah, I decided to come back. This is going to be a, a little bit of a, a shorter episode, probably like 20 minutes, uh, maybe a half hour. I don't know. You, you know, because you downloaded it. Um, but today's episode is going to be about hemophilia, despite the things I just said. Um, this, one, this one is going to be uh, a hemophilia episode, or at least um, it's going to be about the hemophilia community and my relationship to it and how it's changed over time. I think it has implications beyond the hemophilia community, um, but but it was certainly the impetus for this conversation and the line of thought I'm going to follow here. the The general concept of this episode is an examination of my my feeling alienated by my own community because of my allergy and inhibitor. If you listen to the the first couple of episodes or you know me personally, I'm I'm just going to give like a a little brief rundown that you've heard before. Uh, about hemophilia and how my diagnosis differs from the average diagnosis, I guess. I, I told myself I wouldn't start episodes with this every time, but I think it's probably important here. Um, so hemophilia, generally speaking, is a deficiency in or absence of a protein that is necessary to clot your blood. Hemophilia A patients are deficient in factor eight. Hemophilia B patients are deficient in factor nine. And the treatment for for those two hemophilias are a synthetic, often synthetic replacement for those clotting proteins. So if you, I have hemophilia B, so I would uh, intravenously inject a replacement for the factor nine protein, so my blood could get back to normal and I can form stable clots. However, if you have a complete gene deletion like me, your your body sees the the um, protein replacement as so foreign that it anaphylaxes, and so I have a, a, a death deadly allergic reaction to the medication that I need and I have to use a different medication one that works but does not work as well as a factor nine replacement would I actually use factor seven instead of factor nine now it works but I can't treat preventatively as some hemophiliacs can do And uh, the half-life of the drug is is so short that it only lasts two hours, so I have to do a bunch of infusions. And because I can't treat preventatively, I have to wait for an internal bleed to start before I can start treating it, which often leads to a bunch of pain, sleepless nights, and over the course of my life has led to a significant amount of joint damage in my knees, ankles, and elbows. Um, So, you know, quality of life varies pretty greatly between different hemophilia patients and that has led to some feelings of alienation. The, the feelings though are, are mostly self-imposed notably and admittedly. Um, but it's something I felt for years now and I thought it was time to unpack it a little bit and deconstruct it. In thinking about it, it also made me want to reread an Audrey Lorde essay that was really important to me in college. And I actually didn't get exactly what I was expecting to get out of it. Um, but it really helped me recontextualize my feelings in this instance, and so I wanted to talk about that as well. Also, with the new format of this this podcast, I thought it would be cool to do shit like that because I was a lit major and I miss doing little mini, you know, book reports. And uh, Audrey Lord is certainly certainly worth your attention and my attention, and so I was excited to uh, shoehorn a reason to reread her into my life. Uh, this episode is tentatively titled Self-Alienation, Adversity, and Audrey Lord." So to start, um, where are these feelings of alienation coming from? Broadly speaking, they've come from seeing advancements in the, the treatment of other hemophilia diagnoses, but mine remaining stagnant my whole life. So as I discussed, the the treatment for different hemophilia patients now varies pretty significantly. I suppose it always has, but um, in my experience, you know, it, it, it seems like the divide between myself and other hemophilia patients has only grown because um, since I have a, a fairly rare case of hemophilia, me and patients like me have to use a medication that only we use, a, a, a very few amount of patients use. And um, because of that, pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily invest that much in the development and advancement of those treatments because it serves such a small demographic. And so other hemophilia patients have seen um, advancements in their treatments, whether it's new treatments or just extended half-lives on their current treatments, um, and that has improved their, their quality of life pretty significantly. So there are some kids growing up. Right now, that will only be affected by their hemophilia in so much as they will have to remember to do their prophylactic or preventative infusions. They'll be able to do an infusion and the the drug will keep their factor levels pretty normal for a couple days, a couple weeks, maybe a couple months. And so they'll be able to live incredibly normal lives as long as they remember to do those treatments. Also, just as an aside, when I was in the hospital last month, A nurse came in with her supervisor and asked me if I was doing treatments prophylactically or episodically. And her supervisor started giggling and she was like, I don't think you know what prophylactically means. And kind of tried to embarrass this girl a little bit. And I was like, no, 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 she's right. People just always assume prophylactics mean condoms, but that's not the case. It's just a preventative treatment, sometimes for babies, but sometimes for hemophilia. And so, because of this change, I've seen other hemophiliacs. Um, younger ones, but even my age or older, living very normal, healthy, active lifestyles. And this is, as well as seeing how some of these patients talk about it, manifested in some resentment that I've had difficulty getting away from. So hemophilia in general primarily affects a person physically. Obviously, consistent limitations in your physical ability often leads to emotional, mental, and psychosocial issues as well. For example, anecdotally, my, my first episode was about how not being able to walk for a few years in middle school led to disordered eating for me. Not to plug my, my first episode, but I, I just say that because I want to adequately express what a big deal just being able to function relatively normally in your everyday life is for a hemophiliac. Starting as early as kindergarten, or w- whenever I first really started having bleeds, all I wanted to be able to do was to walk around without pain. Not run, not lift weights, not play sports, but just walk around. I actually made a little uh, autobiographical comic about a, a time in my life where after, after that, those couple years of not walking in middle school, and junior high school, um, in 8th grade in particular, I remember I went to the bathroom before I had music class in 8th grade. And I was walking from the bathroom to music class and realized that I could not feel my steps, that I was walking without pain. And it was the first time at that moment that I could remember where I was where that was true. And it just it absolutely blew my mind. And so I, I just kept walking, did not go to music class. I went to a Catholic a Catholic middle school and junior high. And so I just like walked right past the classroom and ended up going to the church that was attached to the school and just walking up and down in between the pews because I wanted to enjoy what it felt like to walk without hurting. And also shout out to the priest. I don't remember his name, but he saw me in there and asked me what I was doing. And I just straight up told him uh, what was happening. And, and he, he sat me down and he was like, man, that's, that's really fucking cool. Well, he didn't say fucking, but, he was like, that's really cool, and, and let me have the period of, of just walking around, and I helped him do some stuff, and and then um, in order to help me prevent, or in order to prevent me from getting in trouble, he walked with me to my my music class and said, hey, I needed some help, but I saw Michael in the hallway, and I asked him to come help me, which got me out of trouble, because I, I don't know what I would have done had he not done that. I, I didn't really care at the moment. I just wanted to go walk around. It was the only time I ever enjoyed um, being in church. So shout out to that guy. But that, you know, that was honestly the last time I remember walking without pain because I had a surgery every year of high school, and my my body has just kind of gotten worse from there. Um, and so yeah, this this grew this grew to be a bigger deal for me the older I got, and the worse my joint damage and body became. You know, being able to function normally became the biggest deal and right now a good day for me is being able to walk up and down the stairs to my apartment without wanting to rip my hair out and so because the the physical complications of hemophilia are so apparent and important and because they're the primary consequence of having hemophilia successive treatment today is often measured by how well those complications are controlled when i was a kid everyone was kind of fucked It was like just hearing that someone had hemophilia was enough information to assume that they were going to have physical complications. Additionally, you know, my body had not gotten to the point where I was hurting every day yet. But that's why being a part of the hemophilia community was so comforting. That's why being around other hemophiliacs was so comforting. I knew that another hemophiliac, most other hemophiliacs in the country, would be able to relate to me in that way. As much as my my friends and girlfriends and family members tried to understand what I was going through... We all knew they would never truly understand it because they were never going to experience these things directly. But I knew that most hemophiliacs I encountered at that time would know exactly what I was going through as far as, you know, the pain and the, the feeling of joint damage increasing over time and losing your ability to function in your everyday life. But as I mentioned earlier, treatment for different diagnoses of hemophilia varies greatly now. And because of that, the amount of physical complications varies greatly. So just hearing that someone has hemophilia is no longer enough information for me or patients like me to assume that we can relate on that level anymore, which in many ways is great. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly happy for patients who are living better lives. But those patients, these patients communicating their successes, especially if it's done sloppily, or even communicating their failures since they look much different than the failures of patients like me can make patients like me feel like we're outside our own community. The big example for me right now is, is the the communication of this narrative of, of quote, turning adversity into opportunity. It's gotten to the point where just hearing the word opportunity makes me want to fucking poke my eyes out. There are some hemophilia patients, particularly on social media who proselytize this hyper positive attitude the whole turning adversity into opportunity narrative is not it's not a terrible sentiment but the communication of this narrative is often done in 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 such a way that it becomes so muddy to the point of incoherence and in thinking about it i've encountered two problems with that first of all and this is just me bitching about the nature of this line of thought It seems like many of the people who say these things have no concrete examples of the opportunity that adversity creates. The only opportunity I see oftentimes is this person profiting, monetarily or just socially, from the preaching of the narrative. So the opportunity they create is just telling other people to create opportunity, and this opens doors for them to speak where they just say, Adversity creates opportunity, create adversity or opportunity from adversity, Um, which is, and that's entirely circular and not substantive at all or valuable. And it makes people feel bad for not being able to turn their adversity into opportunity. And this, this of course is something that goes beyond the hemophilia community. I, I see this shit everywhere and it drives me crazy. There's just, there's, there's an important semantical difference between saying that pain in the case of hemophiliacs is itself the opportunity and not the inspiration for an opportunity. So turn your pain into opportunity is not enough. It's not enough of a thing to say that it should be said so frequently. And they they find they find success espousing this bullshit because I think I think people are so desperate to find some significance in their suffering that they're willing to claim there is some regardless of whether or not that's true which is understandable. I mean, that's human. I I think we all want to find some significance in our suffering and, and we don't want it to be pointless. Um, but, but shit, man, sometimes it is, you know, suffering does not inherently have value. Sometimes it just sucks. And that's important here because there are these, you know, not to call anyone out, but there's these like bodybuilder hemophiliacs who act like the only difference between them and and I and other hemophiliacs like me is willpower. And that's just not true. And this brings me to my second problem with it. And that's just, and this is more specific to the hemophilia community. With the knowledge that overcoming physical complications is the primary goal of hemophilia treatment, these dudes have to understand that talking about their physical successes can make hemophiliacs feel like absolute shit, when for them it's physically impossible to overcome their their pain and to achieve these physical successes. And like, I, I don't care about reaching the people who are just lazy, who, who could do these things, they just need motivation, and if the intention to reach that type of person was made clear by those preaching this stuff, I wouldn't care about them. That's just fine. But it isn't. And if, if you're going to propagate a seemingly impossibly optimistic stance, it can't be this reductive bullshit. It has to be applicable to someone's everyday life. And that's often just impossible for patients like me. It isn't applicable to our lives. And I think, you know, when I when I was trying to write my thoughts down for this, I figured the, the good counter argument that someone like that could say to me is that they're, they're they're just preaching this stuff to say, this is my success. Physical success is my success. And I'm just sharing my journey so that other hemophiliacs can find what makes them feel successful in their lives and work really hard for it as I work really hard for mine. But but they have to do this with the understanding that every hemophiliac wants to be successful physically. It's, it's always what we're thinking about. Of course it is. We all really wish we could run around and go to the gym. And, and believe me, I know what they do is difficult The people, you know, preaching this stuff and, and going to the gym and achieving things physically. I know that what they do is super difficult. And I know that they still struggle with the occasional bleed and the pain associated with them. And, but, but to be honest, it leaves people like me with our arms crossed in the corner of the room saying, you must have no idea what terrible hemophilia is like. And just having that thought sucks. I know we shouldn't think like that, but that's, that's where this resentment comes from is seeing hemophiliacs act like this is an achievable goal. And you, you, you know, you can go to the gym and build muscle when we're just struggling to get up the stairs to our apartment every day. And so that leads me, that leads me to Lord, um, Audrey Lord, not L-O-R-D, L-O-R-D-E, um, I'd like to to connect my deconstruction of this resentment with Audre Lorde's essay The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Audre Lorde was an amazing feminist essayist and poet and civil rights activist in the the mid to late 20th century. I think she died in the early 90s. And um The Master's Tools was published in 84. And just to give a brief overview of of the essay it was it was a reflection on her um Her appearance and presentation at a humanities conference at New York University. She was black and gay, and she found herself relegated to those particular areas of the conference. She was not asked to speak generally as a feminist, but was only asked to speak as a gay, black, feminist writer and she noted that the the limiting of her voice to these areas mirrored the oppressive patriarchal system that her and her contemporaries had created a movement to fight against hence the title the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and this is i can i can hear a criticism of this this is admittedly a loose connection i know but but it made me think of of my situation with the hemophilia community like patients with inhibitors and allergies who have limited and often worse treatment options feel like our voices and our lives are being relegated to those particular areas. We're no longer in the community that we were before. And to connect and contribute to the conversation about life with hemophilia, we have to find our own room to speak in. And that sucks. I feel like I'm ending a lot of uh, ideas with, and that sucks. Uh, But it's true. And reading this essay again was was significant and important to me in this instance because I went in thinking I was going to identify with Lord. And to be honest, I was hoping to to relearn the strategies with which she approached the alienation that was imposed on her within her community and apply it to my situation. But I left feeling both like Lord and the people to whom she was speaking. This was when I realized that the the disaffection and the alienation I was feeling within my community was perhaps mostly self imposed and was going the other way. I was alienating these other patients from myself and, and from patients like me. Um, I wanted to share three of my, my favorite quotes from the essay, quotes that really stuck out to me while I was reading it in this context. Lord writes Within community, there is no liberation only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between an individual and her oppression. But community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. In our world, divide and conquer must become define and empower. And I, I, um, I think I'll begin to wrap this up with the same quote with which Audrey Lorde began to end her essay. She actually quoted Simone de Beauvoir. Um, De Beauvoir once said, It is in the knowledge of our genuine conditions of our lives that we must draw our strength to live and our reasons for acting. You know, being, being realistic about the conditions present in our lives is the most significant work we can do. And the only way to successfully navigate the challenges that come as a result of them. I feel like this episode is going to end rather abruptly, but I think that's because the conclusion to it is, is kind of simple. Remembering and reflecting on this essay made me realize I was holding my middle finger up to people who did not deserve it. We are all still battling astronomical medical bills and insurance issues and the the potential for joint damage. And the most valuable thing I could do is not alienate myself from other people in my community, nor other people in my community from myself. Because the truth is, our voice as a whole is the amplification of my own. If you're a hemophilia patient listening to this and you have inhibitors or an allergy or both, or if you're someone who's found yourself feeling resentful of people in your community because they're succeeding in a way that you wish you could succeed, or you feel like you, you're you growing apart from your community because there is some sort of growing difference between the members of it, remember that there is a reason you were a part of that community in the first place. And support of one another is how you all succeed. Your movement, whatever it is, depends on you. And I think, I think that's where I'm going to end things. Um, thank you all for listening. This podcast is back, man. And I'm happy to be doing it again. I don't have a set schedule set up, um, but I have a lot of ideas ready. So I'm just going to record as much as I can, as soon as I can, and see where it all takes me. An episode like this, I know it's it's super short, but it was important for me because, like I said, it helped me feel like this podcast is sustainable. I'm sure I'll occasionally hit you with some super emotional heavy shit, but for my sake and yours, I'm just going to approach this however I feel like approaching it from episode to episode. And so I'm sorry. I hope you don't feel short-changed, because um, this episode is like half as long as my other ones, but... I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you listening and uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you.